The rest of you, you know what to do. Grab your Bibles. We're going to be in the Gospel of John this morning in John chapter 8. We're going to be looking in verses 21 and running through verse 30 this morning. Before we jump into our passage, there's a little housekeeping we need to do. If you were here last week, um, I gave a challenge last week with our message, and I put five verses up on the screen that I wanted to challenge you and encourage you to memorize in order to share the gospel. So you wouldn't have to, if you didn't have your physical Bible with you on hand, um, if you didn't want to have to Google verses or scroll through the Bible app, that you could go to these verses, memorize them, and you'd be able to present the gospel in any sort of conversation that you had. So here's the screen that was up on last week. Go ahead and throw it up there, Ethan. And I am glad to say there were some people who came to me and told me one particular passage you had on the screen was not correct. And I say I'm happy for that, I'm thankful for that, because even though I'm a pastor, I'm not above reproach. And I believe that if something is said or shown that is biblically inaccurate, then it should be called out. And so this is the actual verses that you should have had. Go to the next one, Ethan. The difference is John 14.10 is actually supposed to be John 14.6. And if you would have looked it up in Scripture, you would have seen that was wrong last week. John 14.6 says, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. John 14.10, I have no idea what it says off the top of my head. So. <clears throat> um, but the rest of the passages are correct. And so, again, I want to issue that challenge and that encouragement to memorize these passages of Scripture, as well as other passages of Scripture uh, that you can use when Satan comes to bring his temptations, his war into your life, that you can speak truth into Satan's lies. Our passage today is a continuation of what has been taking place in Jerusalem during the Festival of Booths. It ties all the way back to the opening of chapter 7. It deals right after the situation we looked at last week. When the Pharisees confronted Jesus concerning his testimony. In our passage this morning, Jesus turns his attention to the crowds that are gathered on the temple. This is the last night of the festival of booths. We know that the religious leaders are still there. John tends to define them or group them all under the phrase as Jews. But Jesus is speaking to the crowds and their reaction to what he is saying. Most likely the crowds had witnessed the confrontation between Jesus and the Pharisees, who they viewed as their religious leaders. And what Jesus is going to do in this exchange this morning is he's going to try to get people to understand where he has come from, what he is going to do, where he is going to return, and why it is important for them to come to faith in all of those things. So to understand our, our focus this morning is he who sent me. And so let's read our passage real quick. It's hot up here. I don't know what it's like down there, but I need something. Um, Sorry. Distraction. Um, Let us read our passage real quick, and we'll begin to walk through it. And the word of the Lord says, So he said to them again, I'm going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, Will he kill himself? Since he says, Where I'm going, you cannot come. 
He said to them, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, who are you? And Jesus said to them, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. Verse 28. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but I speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. I want you to notice a couple phrases, in particular a key phrase in verse 21 and also found in verse 24. And that is the phrase about dying in our sins. Verse 21 says, you will die in your sin. Verse 24 states it twice, that you would or will die in your sins. And what we do here is we're finding Jesus as he's nearing the end of his earthly ministry, getting more to the point of not only who he is and what he is going to do, but also in what is holding people back. This is the third time since the beginning of chapter 7 when Jesus is at this particular festival that he tells the people that he is going to be going away and where he is going, they cannot come. It's the second time Jesus mentions that people will seek after him, but they're not going to be able to find him during the series of these events. The first time Jesus mentions, the people thought he was intending to go to the dispersion among the Greeks. That's John 7, verse 35. But this particular time, when Jesus makes this statement, where I'm going, you cannot go, the people think he's going to commit suicide. Both situations would have been looked down upon the Jewish people. To go to the land of the Greeks, even though there were Jews in that land, would have been deemed to make yourself unclean, and therefore unworthy to enter into the presence of God, to commit suicide as a Jew was heavily taboo. They believed anyone who committed suicide would be condemned to hell. And they would have no chance, no possibility of being with the Father. Now, there are some denominations who still hold to this, but I just want to tell you there's no biblical backing to that idea. The only individual in Scripture who was condemned for committing suicide was Judas. And that's because he betrayed the Christ. And coming back to our passage, Jesus is preparing the people for what is going to transpire in the next six to eight months. We're nearing the end of his earthly ministry, and he's pointing to his crucifixion. He's pointing to the resurrection. He's pointing to the ascension, which John typically refers to as the glorification of Christ. The phrase in verse 21, you will seek me, and you will die in your sin." is alluding to the fact that Jesus is fully aware these Jewish people who he came to save, he came to save all people, but that these Jewish people who were seeking the Messiah, that after Jesus rose from the grave and would ascend into the heavens, they would still seek after the Messiah. And Jews are still doing that today. If they have not come to faith in Christ, they're still waiting for the Christ to come. They're still waiting for the Messiah to appear. And this is why Jesus says this, you will seek me and you will die in your sin. They are still seeking the Messiah when he's standing right before them. Verse 21 is telling us the sin 
is the sin of unbelief. John Calvin wrote, unbelief is the fountain and cause of all evils. The reason he can say that is, if we don't believe in Christ, then that means we actually don't believe in God. And if we don't believe in God, then we don't and won't live according to God's will, according to his law, and according to his standards. Because Jesus Christ was God. And Jesus pointed this out and made it abundantly clear in verse 19 of chapter 8. He says, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. So people may know about God. They may know things about God. They may say they even believe there is a God. But if they don't know Jesus, they don't know God. There will be many people in Jesus' day and there are many people in our day who are going to die in this particular sin. Just as in Jesus' day, many believed that Jesus was a miracle worker. Many of the people believed that Jesus was a prophet. Many people believed that Jesus was a great teacher. And those are all things that are true about Jesus, but Jesus came to be the Savior of the world. He was the Christ. He was the Messiah. And this is what people in Jesus' day were struggling to understand and come to faith with just as people today. There's nothing new under the sun. Jesus, understanding this confusion that's happening within the crowd, which we read in verse 22, he addresses them once again in verses 23 and 24, and he's trying to get them from this unbelieving sin into a believing faith. His comment in verse 22 is very similar to how he addressed the Pharisees concerning their judgment in verse 15, when he told the Pharisees that you judge according to the flesh, you judge according to human standards, you judge by what you can see. Here he is telling the people that they too are attached to this world. He says, you are from below. Meaning of that phrase means you are from this world. Saying and telling them he is from above, he's wanting to change their perspective. We've already seen the crowds and religious leaders wrestling with Jesus' identity during this week-long festival because they believed they knew where he was from physically. They knew that he dwelled in Galilee. They knew who his family was, but here's what faith requires. Faith requires us to stop thinking worldly and to start thinking according to what God has said. Jesus' statement in verse 23 is also a great reminder for us that Jesus was not of this world. And here's the thing, if you are found in Christ, then you do not belong to this world anymore. The Bible tells us when Peter wrote, you are a chosen race, you are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. He goes on to say, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul and keep your conduct among the Gentiles. And that word Gentiles there in Peter is speaking of unbelievers, not a, a, a people group. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles or unbelievers, un unbelievers honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God 
on the day of salvation. Some versions say on the day of his visitation. We don't belong here. Just as much as Jesus didn't belong here. Because we too are looking forward to when we're going to go home, our eternal home in heaven. Verse 24, it says, Jesus tries to simplify his statement of verse 21 for the crowds. He says, I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. This time, I want you to notice that sin is plural. So we have the sin of unbelief, that's one thing. But then the continual sins that people wrestle with is another. Both of them come with the same sentencing. Notice Jesus delivers the remedy there in verse 24. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Verse 24 could probably be seen as the key verse of this engagement with Jesus and the crowds. And what we learn from this verse is he who sent is the rescuer. I love a good action movie. I love sci-fi movies. Big Star Wars nerd. I love superhero movies, even though Jason's fasting from them now on. The best ones are when the most unlikely individual rises to become the hero. Just think about some of these superhero movies or action-packed movies, even sci-fi movies. Let's take uh, the, the, the best Christmas movie there is to date, Die Hard. Okay? So Die Hard, if you don't know the, the synopsis of the movie, you basically have this cop that arrives to go to, I think it's still his wife. I can't remember. I know they had a divorce in one of them. But he goes to his wife's Christmas party in the famous tower, which escapes my mind at the moment. And he was told on the airplane, because he was kind of nervous and upset, that he should take off his shoes and rub his feet on the carpet, and that will kind of soothe his nerves. So he does that. And so the rest of the movie, he's running around this building that has been taken over by terrorists, shoeless, stepping on glass, so that he can save his wife and all the other people who are still alive. And so this cop, out of nowhere, rises to the occasion and becomes the hero. Star Wars. Star Wars pretty much, if, 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 you, if you, I, I love Star Wars, but Star Wars pretty much has the same theme in all three trilogies. It's the same theme, an unlikely individual rising to glory and sometimes to their downfall. Well, Batman. Batman becomes an orphan. He's left to be taken care of by his, uh, whatever he's called, butler. And as he grows up, he decides he's going to use the resources that his parents have left him in inheritance, and he's going to save the city from corruption. Spider-Man, he's a computer kid. Some would call him maybe a geek. He gets powers, bitten by a spider, and then he uses those powers to protect his neighborhood. Movies like The Hobbit, Lord of the Rings, The Matrix, Richard's favorite, Ernest Saves Christmas. They all have the same flow. An unknown or unexpected individual rising to the occasion to save the day. I bring this up because this was the issue the people were having with Jesus in Jesus' day. What was known about him? He wasn't adding up to their expectations. They knew or thought he was from Nazareth. 
They knew he typically stayed in Galilee. What was unknown about him, they didn't want to really look into. They didn't actually know that he was born in Bethlehem. They didn't, even though they knew who his parents were, they didn't put two and two together and say, oh, well, yeah, I guess he did come from the line of David. He is from the tribe of Judah. What they thought they knew compared to what they needed to know was what was keeping them in the sin of unbelief. And yet we find Jesus trying to get them to understand that he is the Messiah and their Savior. And we're told in verse 30, and many believed in him. God sent his son to rescue us from our sins. And it is only by putting our faith in Jesus Christ alone can we be rescued. It is all about what Jesus did in living a perfect life. It's about what Jesus did in dying on the cross for the sins of the world. It's about what Jesus did in rising from the grave and ascending back to the right hand of the Father. It's about what Jesus is going to do when he's going to return. Our faith is in the complete work of Christ. Just like when people celebrate in the movies when the hero wins the battle or rises to the occasion, we as God's people are to be a people of celebration. We are to be a people of worship. Because if we belong to God, we've been rescued. I heard an old, old story. How a Savior came from glory. How he gave his life on Calvary to save a wretch like me. I heard about his groaning, of his precious blood atoning. And then I repented of my sins and won the victory. Victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. He sought me and he bought me with his redeeming blood. He loved me ere I knew him, and all my love is due him. He plunged me into victory beneath the cleansing flood. We've been rescued. But when we come to verse 25, we see the people just aren't getting it. And they're starting to get just as frustrated with Jesus as the Pharisees have been getting. The question in verse 25 where they ask, who are you, Could, is, should be better read as this. Who do you think you are? They're mad at him. Yet we find Jesus in his grace-loving way not being offended, but talking on with this aggravated group of people. He first addresses the situation by telling the people, he is who he has always, he is, as he always has said he was. The New Living Tra Translation of verse 25 reads it like this, I'm the one I have always claimed to be. Despite Jesus' heavy opposition, despite knowing the religious leaders were out to kill him, despite the aggravation of some of the people who were gathered in the crowd, Jesus remained steadfast and he remained true. He has told them that he is the living water. He has told them that he is the bread of life. He has told them that he is the fulfillment of all the scriptures and prophecies. He has told them that he has been sent by God. He has told them that he is the son of God and therefore equal with God. He has told them that he is the only means to which they can earn or obtain eternal life and to be forgiven for their sins. And now as they come and they question his authority, who do you think you are? When normally they were in awe of him, he simply reminds them of what he's been telling them from the very beginning and that's been truth. And truth does not change. 
That's what he tells him in verse 26. What we learn is he who's sent is trustworthy. The word true in verse 26 sometimes is read as trustworthy or truthful. The Greek word carries the meaning of righteous, honest, genuine, real, not concealed. And isn't it awesome to know when we come to the word of God, every word in this book can be trusted. Every single word. Every word in this book is true. Every word in this book is real and it's genuine. Now sometimes we may not like the honesty of God in his word when it comes to things in our life, but it's still going to be real. It's still going to be genuine. It's still going to be trustworthy. A.W. Tozier wrote that God's promises reveal everything we need to know about God, and more important, everything God wants us to be. Most of us have heard the saying, you can take it to the bank. thought of the saying is, whatever is being said, or whatever is being expressed as dependable, then we can depend on it as much as money that is locked in a bank safe. Now, there's a problem with that saying, actually. And you take it to the bank. And if you encounter anyone who grew up during the Great Depression, they would tell you they would take nothing to the bank. <laughs> Matter of fact, when my granny and granddad passed away, my parents and my uncle, who's also gone home to be with the Lord, were cleaning out their house. And they had to go through every shoebox. They had to go through every container, every pocket. They had to step on every loose floorboard. Because my granny had stashed over $7,000 throughout the house. And they were convinced she forgot where she put it. But they found all this money because she went through that Great Depression. Jesus is looking at this crowd. And he's wanting them to get to a place of belief. And he's telling them, look, you can take me at my word because I'm speaking God's word. We can take God at his word, but we also see something there in verse 26. Jesus took God's word to the world, and what we learn from that is now it is our responsibility as God's people to take God's word into the world. 2 Corinthians says, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him who knew no sin to be sin." So in him, we might become the righteousness of God, working together with him. Then we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Now, the hurdle for some in this crowd in our passage is what Jesus had mentioned previously within the festival. Back in chapter 7, verse 28 and 29, he says that you know me. You know where I come from. But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him because I come from him, and he sent me. This is why we're told here in verse 27 that they didn't understand. They weren't getting it. But just because people don't understand the gospel we present doesn't give us the excuse to stop sharing it. We have to imitate Christ who kept trying to, Get the people to understand and get them to a place of a belief and where they needed to be. Let's look at verse 28 and 29. 
So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. And I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to them. Now when Jesus says this, particularly the phrase about being lifted up, he's taking from a passage out of the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 52, which speaks of the Lord's coming salvation and how that salvation will be found through the suffering servant who would be pierced for our transgressions. The particular verse is Psalm 52, 13, and it reads this, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up, and he shall be exalted. Now, this isn't the first time Jesus has used this phrase about the Son of Man being lifted up. He first told Nicodemus in John chapter 3 that the Son will be lifted up. He's going to say it again in chapter 12 that the Son will be lifted up. Now, the phrase lifted up carries two meanings. The first is Jesus is realizing, that, or he knows, that he is going to be lifted up on the cross for the sins of the world. But then with the aid of John chapter 12, we also know that Jesus is using this phrase to speak of the time of his ultimate glorification when he is going to be lifted up and ascend back to the Father to be at the right hand. And though these people are failing to understand what Jesus is trying to tell them, he repeatedly tries to get them to a place of understanding. This also isn't the first time that Jesus has spoken about authority while at this particular festival. In John chapter 7, verse 16, he says, If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. With all this being said, the cross is in view. Jesus knows he has not been betrayed, though, by his Father. He knows that his Father is not going to desert me, him. Unlike other disciples in John chapter 6 who deserted Jesus, Jesus knows that his Father will never leave him. And his Father will never forsake him. Because Jesus says, I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And what this teaches about Jesus and about ourselves is that he who sent is with us. This is the confidence that Paul had. 831, Paul, led by the Spirit to write, If God is for us, who can be against us? It's a confidence David wrote in Psalm 27.1. He says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? It's actually a phrase from the last psalm of the Hallel, which these people in the crowd would have just finished singing moments before. Psalm 118.6 says, The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? We live in a world where there are many children and some have now become adults who have been abandoned by their fathers. But as children of God, we can rest assured in the promise that God, our Heavenly Father, will never abandon us. He fought to save us. He died to save us. He rose from the grave to save us. He ascended to the heavens to save us. And he promises he's going to return one day to save us from the corruption of this world. 
For this reason, I turn back to 2 Corinthians 5.20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on the behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. God is not only always with us. The Bible tells us that if we're found in Christ and he is our Lord and Savior, God now dwells inside of us through his spirit. We are temples of the living God. Just as the Israelites in the Old Testament would take up the tabernacle and they would move it as a symbol that God was in their midst. He lived, he dwelled in their camp and in their presence. Wherever we go now as children of God, with the spirit of God inside of us, God goes with us. Because he is for us. Let's just sit on that for a moment. Jesus had this understanding that God was always with him because everything he did pleased the Father. That's a way of saying everything he did was according to the Father's will and according to the Father's word. Now, I understand there's not a person in this room, especially the guy behind the microphone, who can make this particular comment. That everything I do pleases God. We all fall short. We all stumble. But at the same time, if we turn to the writings of Paul, Paul who was commissioned to write the majority of the New Testament, in one of his letters he proclaims this, that he is the worst of sinners. Paul, he is the chief of all sinners. Yet in the same breath, Paul understands that he is now found in Christ, and therefore he is covered by the full righteousness of Christ. And so the meaning is that God looked at Paul, the self-titled chief of sinners, and he looked at Paul and all that Jesus did, and all that Jesus represented, and all that Jesus did and represented pleased the Father. And so when God looks at us, If our faith has been placed in the work of Christ, we too get to stand on that ground. That our Heavenly Father, even in our worst moments, looks at us, the full righteousness of Christ, and is pleased. But we may not always do everything that aligns with the Word of God, or everything that we know would please God. God looks at us and only sees what Christ has done for us. And this is why he'll never desert us or leave us. It's with this final statement in verse 30. We're told many believed in him. And I want us to notice something. It says many. It does not say all. The Bible tells us it is God's will that all people would be saved. But the reality is not all people will come to a place of believing and trusting and putting their faith in Christ. At the same time, since God is with us, this doesn't give us a reason or excuse not to be proactive about sharing the gospel. And perhaps there's someone here today that needs to understand the gospel. God created you for a relationship with him. That's your sole purpose in life, is to be in a relationship with God. But it is your sin which keeps you from that relationship. The word sin means to fall short. Um, In today's terms, we would say you shot an air ball. You completely missed the mark. 
And the Bible says if our sin condition is not taken care of, then we will die in our sin and be separated from God for eternity. We can't do enough good things. You can't come to church enough. You can't sing enough. You can't read the Bible enough. You can't memorize enough scripture. We can't prove ourselves that we deserve to be forgiven. But that's why Jesus Christ came. He lived a perfect life according to the word of God, the law of God, which made him be able to be the sacrifice for the sins of the world. And they hung him on the cross, and the full wrath of God was poured upon him. They placed him in a tomb, and he rose three days later. He was seen by over 500 witnesses before he ascended back to the Father with the promise, I will return to take my own home. The Bible says if we place our faith in what Jesus Christ did and not what we think we can do, we will be saved, and we will be forgiven, and we will be given eternal life, and our relationship with God will be restored. If you're here this morning, you know that's something you need to do. We're going to come to a time of invitation. Jason, would you mind coming down? And you just come to Jason and you say, hey, Jason, I, I need to be saved. He's going to talk with you. He's going to pray with you. And I promise you there won't be a person in this room that won't be celebrating with you. Because when one person comes to Christ, the heavens erupt. Let's pray together. Bridget's going to come back up and join me. If you need to come down, I invite you to come. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for everything you've done for us. And I pray if there's someone here this morning that needs to accept you as their Lord and Savior, that today would become the day of their salvation. Continue to be glorified in this moment. Continue to move to the hearts of the people here today. Thank you, Lord, that you came to rescue us and that we can trust you. We love you and we praise you. Help us in this time to not just be hearers of your word, but doers. We praise in the name of Jesus. Amen.